Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarate, your host on this episode, Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama, a new book edited by former National Security Advisor Stephen J. Hadley, 30 of 40 classified National Security Council memos now available in print, a great discussion to be had, a window into the Bush foreign policy legacy and a reflection of the orderly foreign policy transition between the Bush and Obama administrations. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White nights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast, episode 37. I'm Juan Zarate, your host. Thank you for joining us for a discussion of this critically important and revelatory book, Handoff. I am so excited to have this discussion and to be doing it with three great friends and colleagues, frankly, who were not only great friends and colleagues during the period of the Bush administration, but also seminal to the publication of this book. Starting with Willen Bowden, who was one of the co-editors along with Peter Fever, and Megan O'Sullivan. Many of you know Willow uh, in Bowdoin as the executive director of the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas. He's on faculty there at the LBJ School. He was a senior director for strategic planning at the NSC, working for Steve Hadley and working with all of us, and was a key part of the publication of this book. Will, it's a pleasure to have you on FinCast. Thanks so much, Juan. Great to be with you. Also with us, a name that's familiar to those who follow FinCast, Dr. Michelle Malvesti, a senior managing director here at K2 Integrity, importantly, visiting professor at the University of Texas. She teaches alongside Will down there in Austin. We've got uh, the Hook'em Horns contingent here today, former professor and senior fellow at uh, Fletcher School at Yale, great academic, five years on the National Security Council during the Bush administration serving as senior director. I got to work with Michelle directly. It was a great honor. Michelle was brought back in 2009 by the Obama administration to be the co-chair for the presidential study on homeland security and counterterrorism, so she can speak deeply to the transition between administrations. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Juan. Great here uh, to be with uh, you and uh, with everyone else on the panel today. It's going to be a great discussion. And last but certainly not least, my dear friend and colleague, Farah Pandith, one of the world's great experts on violent uh, ideologies and extremism, now a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School, also a senior fellow for the Future of Diplomacy Project. Importantly, in 2009, named the first ever special representative to Muslim communities by Secretary Clinton. She also served for three plus years on the National Security Council, working on Middle East initiatives with Elliot Abrams, and she's the acclaimed author of How We Win, which is her memoir as well as study on countering violent extremism. Welcome, Farah. Thanks so much, Juan. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's jump in, Will. You were a key part of getting this book out the door, getting the memos declassified. Can you talk to us about why this publication is so important and what it reveals? You sure thing, Juan. And let me 
first say that at the risk of, I don't want this to sound like too much hyperbole, I don't think that there's any other book like this has ever been published. And what I mean is it's just a very unique collection that combines these 30-some declassified National Security Council transition memos, come back to those in a second, and also a second important part is the reflective essays written by you know many of our NSC staff colleagues you know 15 years later looking back and evaluating you know what did we get right what did we get wrong and then the third part of some other essays by some noted scholars providing their own take and so it's a really interesting three-part book and three-part set of set of conversations there so that's what I mean about it. it's it's really really unique and why why is it why is it important first of all all of us here on the on the discussion know, and you know, many of your listeners will appreciate when a presidency changes, when one president is outgoing and there's a transition and another president is coming in, even though there's that two and a half month period of the outgoing and incoming president, the threats to the United States don't go away. America's foreign policy concerns don't go away. Uh, you know, sensitive intelligence operations, overseas military deployments, sensitive diplomacy, none of those things stop and go away. And so it's a real question, how can you ensure that continuity, you know, nonpartisan continuity for these important equities that, that, our, that our country has? And so this book, I think, is a really uh, good case study on how the outgoing National Security Council team uh, does their part to try to pass on insights, institutional memory, important knowledge, some of these operations themselves to the incoming National Security Council team. It is so fundamental to the healthy functioning of a democracy and to, and to American security. And so this book, more than almost any other, gives any readers, any of the American people who want a really unique window into what exactly happens in such a transition and how are those issues issues talked about? And normally these sort of memos, it would have taken 40 or 50 years for them to be declassified. You know, we, you know, our grandkids might be reading them, but thanks to President Bush's personal intervention and involvement, his personal request that they be declassified, Steve Hadley's work and you know, I and a few others worked on this, we were able to get them declassified much, much sooner. And so it's a really rare, rare window. Well, I agree with you. For those of you who haven't picked up the book, it's a massive book. It's really well done, well edited, edited and curated. Will it also reflects a foreign policy that's expansive? I think when we think about the Bush era foreign policy, and we'll dig into this certainly in just a moment with Michelle and with Farah, you think about the war on terror issues, you think about Afghanistan, you think about Iraq, you often forget about the other issues that the administration was grappling with over the course of eight years. Can you speak to the breadth of the memos and the coverage that the book focuses on? Yes, and I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. But as you mentioned, it's a long book. There's a lot of, lot of issues in there. But um, I, my top line summary is, is this, is while counterterrorism and then obviously the you know, the hot war manifestations in Iraq and Afghanistan are you know, maybe what Bush administration's most member for, and those were some of the top level concerns. As you and others know, there were a ton of other issues that the administration was managing, addressing, responding to, you know, new initiatives uh, uh, underway. And I think we can look back now from the vantage point of, you know, some 15 years later and see that this was a real inflection point for a lot of, you know, for America's role in the world. Uh, we, we look back now and can see that these were the early indicators of the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia as more hostile peer competitors, you know, uh, which we're now dealing with now. But you can look back at these memos and 
see some of the early indicators of that. This was also a time when there was a real revolution in development and humanitarian assistance policy, of course, with PEPFAR, which we've now celebrated the 20th anniversary, having saved now 25 million uh, lives from HIV AIDS. Other smart development initiatives designed to be more empowering to people living in, in poverty and lack, lack of opportunity. And you know, the other big theme, you know, the first chapter in the book is on that, that freedom agenda, you know, oft criticized, oft misunderstood. But I still think some of the fundamental insights of it hold true, which is President Bush realized that there's a deeper alliance or convergence between America's values and, and interests, and that uh, democratic governance, governments, ones that are accountable to their people, that respect human rights and human dignity, are, are better partners and allies for the United States, are better security partners, and are better for you know, the, the world economy and other equities too. And so you see some deep reflections on, on the meaning of that policies to support the growth of human freedom, but also I think some realism about some of the real limits on and just how much can be done there. A great summary, Will. Will, I want to come back to you uh, after the dis discussion evolves a little bit and talk about comparison of the Bush administration to the Reagan administration. You, of course, have just published a, a great book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan in the White House and World. Um, I want, want to get your reflections on both your book and how this book and the Bush foreign policy legacy compared to the Reagan administration. But Michelle, let's, let's turn to you because there's a, a heavy focus, of course, on the war on terror. There are five classified memos uh, declassified in this book, one on dismantling Al-Qaeda, another on combating terrorist financing and using financial tools to isolate rogue actors, a theme that our listeners are well familiar with, institutionalizing the war on terror, War of Ideas, and WMD Terrorism. So, Michelle, you worked not only uh, for many years at the NSC, but you also worked on one of the postscript memos in terms of institutionalizing the war on terror. Can you give the listeners a sense of what the Bush approach to terrorism was and why it was so important and revolutionary in the post-9-11 period? Yes, thank, thank you, Juan. As I think many of us on this call and for the listeners have, have experienced that, you know, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, they were a clarion call. And that necessitated a shift in the U.S. counterterrorism policy and strategy, where we moved away from an approach that was primarily and largely reactive into one that went on the offense. It was a shift in focus from a kind of largely symbolic law enforcement activity and punitive military strikes towards a strategy that leveraged all instruments of national power in a global campaign. And in doing so, in undertaking this counterterrorism shift, the Bush administration focused on defeating terrorist groups, and that included incapacitating their leadership, leadership structures, focused on denying terrorist groups sanctuary and support, including physical havens that they could use as a base and launching pad for, for terror. We also focus on diminishing the underlying conditions that terrorists often seek to exploit. And I know that that will get into an area that touches upon FARA's uh, expertise that she'll talk about momentarily, as well as protecting and defending the United States homeland, as well as that of our US partners and allies. And the Bush administration recognized early on that in order to be successful in this approach, we really require transformational structures and processes and partnership. And so we set about to 
you know, use the word to institutionalize these. And this was an order not only to provide the Bush administration the tools to, to fight this generational fight, but to give future presidents, future administrations, the tools that they would need um, in the long war that were to come. Now, when we talk about institutionalization, this included an array of structures and processes. And in many respects, we worked with Congress to establish the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And that was focusing on coordinating the intelligence community CT efforts into a more unified and effective whole. It also you know, created and established the National Counterterrorism Center, which is the mission manager within the intelligence community on analyzing and sharing and integrating terrorism intelligence, created the Department of Homeland Security, where we brought together two, 22 disparate agencies into, into one department, into under one authority to be able to protect and the, defend the homeland uh, from any future terrorist attacks. Existing departments and agencies also restructured. This included Justice Department with the National Security Division, Federal Bureau of Investigation, where their primary mission shifted from criminal investigation towards the prevention of terrorist attacks. And of course, you know, uh, Juan at the Department of the Treasury, where you clearly a visionary and vanguard in this respect, you know, work to establish the Office of Terrorism and Terrorist Finance financial intelligence. Thank and so you, just, Michelle. I, yeah, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> no, your 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 leadership on this was you know was truly visionary and you know great Treasury team, great team. Treasury has always, you know, has always been um, you know an extraordinary partner on on a range of, of these issues. And it's proven to be that case, you, you know, um, in the decades since. And then a final you know key element of the institutionalization was really to strengthen and expand our our counterterrorism partnerships and partnership capacity. You know, we've always said that our most important counterterrorism successes really were made possible because of partnerships. Now, our ideal partner is always a state that's governed by the rule of law, has the ability to extend its writ, shares common values with the United States, and ideally has a history of successful collaboration on CT. But, you know, the United States does not always get its ideal partners. And so we did work to establish, you know, CT collaboration, you know, with certain states where we had an uneven and even, you know, challenging uh, bilateral relationship. But I think overall, when you look at this, you really had all instruments of national power being fully leveraged to institutionalize RCT capacities. It truly was what we called at the time a whole of government approach. And it utilized not just the law enforcement and not just the military, but the diplomatic, the intelligence, the financial and economic, the informational tools in an integrated effort. And, and I think if you look just across the administrations since the Bush administration, there was really a recognition that securing the United States homeland was going to be, you know, an enduring responsibility. And it rested not just even with the federal government, but extended beyond to our state and local and tribal governments, to communities, and also to the private sector, who are the owners and operators of the vast majority of the nation's key resources and critical infrastructure. And so I think overall, what you see is, you know, even where we've shifted towards more of a, even a whole of society approach. And I think that was part of the broader element that we focused on as we sought to institutionalize the war on terrorism framework, Juan. 
No, it's a great framing. And I think that you've reflected the massive shift that uh, was underway, both conceptually, sort of the preventative paradigm taking hold, but also bureaucratically, all the things that were done to create new institutions, new capabilities, information sharing, uh, et cetera, uh, which you reflect very neatly in the in the memo and, and I think is in the original memos uh, as well. Far, let's turn to you because a key part of what the administration wanted to do and was doing both in the war on terror and more broadly in the freedom agenda was engage in a war of ideas. That meant different things to different people, uh, but it was seen as fundamental to how the Bush administration addressed the threat from Al-Qaeda, counterterrorism, and dealt with the rest of the world. How did you see the war of ideas? How did this play out? And uh, again, you contributed very neatly uh, with the postscript memo as well on these topics. So those who are who are interested should go and read your memo, which is fantastic. But how did you see the war of ideas? And then how did that transition as you took on a new role for the Obama administration? Thanks so much, Juan. And I, I will build off of what Michelle said about forward thinking and whole of government. And I think it's very important that you're asking a question, what is the war of ideas? Because it's very clear that as the president was looking at the threat that we faced after 9-11, he clearly understood and concluded that we needed to do more than just look at the kinetic component of the war, the, the hard power protection force. And, and I think there we can look at what, what he was sort of moving forward on, on the ideological component, which was to ask the question, you know, are we doing enough to make sure that we are making sure that Al-Qaeda at the time uh, was not able to recruit and exploit conditions on the ground through their narratives and their ideology of us versus them to bring in more people toward their nefarious goals. And that is what the war of ideas was. It was the ideological dimension of the war. And the thinking that went into that is it echoes much of this sort of forward posture of looking at things over the long term, understanding that Al-Qaeda was not just recruiting older generations, but they were looking at young people. How did we as the United States government think about the ability for us to, to utilize every component in our toolbox to be able to deal with an ideological threat? And there, it's really important to, to remember the, the reimagination and the rethinking that went into this. Sure, they're, they're so importantly, we stood up brand new departments and agencies thinking about how to coordinate better. But we as a government had not prior to 9-11 been thinking really dramatically about what was going to be needed within the U.S. government to make sure that we could win an ideological fight. The Cold War was over. We weren't, our tools in that toolbox um, were, you know, were diminished. We did not have a public diplomacy component that was as robust as we needed it to be. So we were thinking along the lines of how do we stand up a really robust effort to make sure that Al-Qaeda wasn't able to recruit and radicalize? And how did we work and engage with the communities that we knew that they were going to go after to try to build resilience? And so the necessary steps that we had to take was to reformulate a strategy of, of action. 
And that is what the war of ideas was. So countering violent extremism is the field that was developed, the, the tools in the toolbox that are all soft power tools. This was not about policing. This was about giving agency to civil society, engaging with communities in our country and around the world, fortifying the ability for these communities to push back against the ideology of Al-Qaeda and actually, smartly, groups that came after it. So while the War of Ideas and CBE stood up right after 9-11, over the long term, the framework for how we deployed antibodies in the system is it has proven to be extremely important. We have understood that the young demographics in our, uh, demographics in our country and around the world matter because that's where terrorist groups and other types of nefarious actors are going after to build their ideological armies. We understood that the technology, the social media was moving at a really rapid pace and that the nefarious actors were in fact using technology to recruit and radicalize and to bring people on the board. So the war of ideas effort was both in the online space and in the offline space. It was looking at younger generations. It was thinking about civil society in brand new ways, building networks of like-minded thinkers, build, being the creator of brand new types of efforts with, Michelle was talking about partners, we were rethinking the kind of partnerships that we could engage with to, to look at this ideological fight. So I look at this effort, uh, certainly in the 20 years that have passed, Every single administration has used the frame of grassroots matters, civil society matters, lifting up voices that can build resilience. This was the frame that President Bush put forward, President Obama continued with, even President Trump, and certainly now President Biden as he looks at the domestic threat. It is all about resilience at the grassroots level and what government can do to make sure every aspect of government is using all the tools that they have. And far, that's such a great explanation. It also speaks to the role you took on for uh, Secretary Clinton and the Obama administration, because there was so much personal diplomacy that you were engaged in to engage religious leaders, tribal leaders, community leaders all around the world in Muslim communities, in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, uh, in North and South America. You were literally all over the world. Can you just speak to that element of personal diplomacy? And it speaks to what you and Michelle were talking about terms of an all of society approach to this problem. Thanks so much, Juan. You know, uh, President Bush recognized that we faced a historical ideological struggle. And while this was stood up in the context of 9-11, there were different types of groups that were trying to exploit the religion of Islam. And actually since that time, other groups that are using other religious ideologies to try to build armies. And what we understand is that the United States government has a role to play, most importantly, as the convener and the facilitator and the intellectual partner with ideas on the ground when it comes to fighting ideology, because we know that influencers at the grassroots matter. So this engagement strategy that started with President Bush in talking to um, you know, credible voices, uh, influencers, those people that make a difference, um, was something that we, we actually took forward globally in the Obama administration in the way that you just described, because we knew that there were going to be local ideas that were actually terrific. 
And we didn't, as the United States government, need to have a U.S. flag on every program that we, we worked on. We understood that could the U.S. government listen to ideas on the ground, help build networks of like-minded thinkers? Could we offer support in other ways so that ideas were growing that were organic and credible, that were fortifying communities as diverse as those in Sao Paulo and those as diverse as Nouakchott, Mauritania? Love it. It was great work, Farah. And I loved watching you from afar do your handiwork. Will, let's bring you back into the conversation. I want, I want to hear some of your reflections. You're, you're one of the great foreign policy and national security minds in the nation. How do you compare, you know, the Bush administration, their handling of the war on terror, the war of ideas, as just explained by Farah, to the to the Reagan era of Cold War uh, mentalities and structures? How have you thought about that comparison, especially in light of your recent book? Well, yeah, thanks, Juan, for mentioning this. And uh, I think there's a number of really interesting comparisons and parallels that I'll, I'll want to highlight, particularly between Reagan and, and George, George W. Bush, uh, President Bush 43. And first, to give some historical context here, Reagan and George W. Bush are the only two Republican presidents to serve serve two terms since Dwight Eisenhower, right? I mean, so just the mere, the mere fact of you know successfully getting reelected and successfully completing two terms is notable. We haven't had many of those among Republicans. Uh, and then when you factor Eisenhower in, Eisenhower, Reagan, and Bush are the only three two-term Republican presidents we've had in the last 125 years. So you know, just in political terms, they're they're in a special category. I'll bang these off quickly, but I think there's four really interesting parallels between Reagan and his Cold War strategy and then uh, George W. Bush. The first one pivots very much on what Farah was just talking about. Both Reagan and Bush saw their main conflict as primarily a battle of ideas. The main adversary is primarily an ideological foe. So Reagan saw you know, the contest with the Soviet Union as a battle of ideas between the free world and Soviet communism. And he saw Soviet communism as primarily a vile idea to be defeated, not just a rival nation state to be managed and contained. And as, as Farah was mentioning there very much, while President Bush was certainly you know, committed to the kinetic aspects of combating terrorism, as you and Farah and Michelle all worked on so much, he saw it also as a battle of ideas between this, this you know, really reprehensible idea of violent jihadism and the, and the conditions behind it, and then the broader values uh, that we wanted to support of pluralism and tolerance and, and ultimately freedom and human dignity. So that's the first one. Second is both Reagan and Bush believed very much in American international leadership. The United States really did need to uh, lead, lead the free world uh, to use our power responsibly. They both spoke, they both faced uh, protectionist and isolationist impulses from parts of the American people, even parts of their own party in the 1980s and the, and the early 2000s, and both really spoke out uh, against that. Um, third, they both uh, really believed in a set of values um, uh, shaping America's role in the world, especially the responsibility to support the, the the spread of democracy and human rights. Uh, and, you know, Bush is often misunderstood on this. He wanted to support it peacefully. This is not why he invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, but um, both he and Reagan uh, similar there. And fourth, they're both deeply committed to allies, and they saw allies as a real unique source of American strength, both as assets to our country, but also they both really personally invested in allies. I mean, you look at Reagan's you know, personal friendships with British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, 
Japanese Prime Minister Yasuhiro, Yasuhiro Nakasone, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, you know, West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. Uh, Reagan really invested in these friendships with the Allied leaders. So did so did Bush, uh, obviously with British Prime Minister Tony Blair, one of his closest friends, uh, but also Australian Prime Minister John Howard, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Koizumi, Danish Prime Minister uh, Rasmussen. Uh, those of us who worked for Bush, you know, you very quickly got the sense that this was a man deeply committed to our allies and uh, and his personal friendships with those leaders, and that that trickled down to those of us at the strategy and operational level, and in and empowered our interactions with those countries too. So those would be the, the areas of Reagan and Bush similarities I would see. It's a fantastic summary, Will. And, and you're absolutely right. Those of us who are privileged enough to be in the Oval and listening to his phone conversations with world leaders understood that there was something personal embedded in every conversation and uh, and the president knew it and, and leveraged it and cherished it, I think, in many ways. Michelle, let me turn to you and, and then we'll, we'll close out with maybe a lightning round. But I, I want to get your impressions on the transition on the war on terror. You know, the Obama administration politically really was rejecting sort of the Bush era policies, talked about reversing those policies. But I think history has shown and will continue to show that there was uh, enormous continuity in terms of, you know, the institutions, the approaches, the tools, even the personnel. I, I sometimes joke that I was the only one from the counterterrorism community that left uh, in 2009. But can you speak to that continuity? You saw it firsthand. No, thank, thank you, Juan. And first of all, I just want to just commend Will. I, I'm in the middle of, uh, of Will's book, and it's always just so nice to, to hear his thoughtful insights just across the administrations. I think overall, Juan, there's far more continuity than, than change um, just across the administrations when it came to uh, the war on terrorism. You, you know, you had mentioned that, that I had gone back into the, the Obama White House just very briefly uh, to co-lead uh, Presidential Study Directive 1 that helped the Obama administration reorganize the White House staff for homeland security and, and counterterrorism. And while um, effectively what, what that did was take a, a structure that had been created during the Bush administration, the Homeland Security Council staff, which is a parallel to the National Security Council staff, where all of us ha had worked during the Bush administration, focused on, uh, on specifically on homeland security issues, but to rationalize portfolios and to devise a structure in a way that met the priorities and the decision-making style of, of President Obama. And I think while some might look at that potentially as a, as a shift in some of the institutionalization, I think of what it really reflects is just a maturation of processes as you continue on you know, across, the, across the board. But I think overall what we have Found, which you'll see across the memos, including the one on, on dismantling Al-Qaeda, as well as the institutionalization one, is that there is greater continuity than there is discontinuity uh, across the administrations. Some areas, including uh, where President Obama may have had a shift, was perhaps on some of the direct action uh, capabilities, while the pursuit of the direct action um, are formidable direct action counterterrorism capabilities that the Bush administration 
uh, um, focused on were continued um, under the Obama administration. That's a clear extension of the Bush policies. But the Obama administration did bring, you know, a different and a greater structure and, and transparency uh, to those issues and, and to those decisions, as well as, um, you know, highlighting and perhaps engaging more uh, with the public and in the, in tr transparency with regard to those decisions. But again, much more of a maturation of processes that, that then you see discontinuity or, or, or discord. But I, I think overall, when, when I look across the framework, you know, the framework has has endured. It has endured over, you know, 20 you know, years later, um, which is what the Bush administration had intended was to give future administration those tools, those structures, processes, authorities uh, needed to be able to carry the fight forward. And I think it actually the framework matters now more, more than ever, which might seem strange uh, to perhaps to, to some of the listeners, because terrorism, it doesn't sit atop the national security pyramid in the way that it did while we were all working together in government on these issues, clearly due to competing priorities across a range of critical national security and foreign policy issues and do in part you know to some of the success that that has that we have endured through the years where we did remedy some of those systemic failures that rendered us very vulnerable and susceptible to the terrorist attacks on 9-11 um, as well as quite frankly prevented other catastrophic terrorist attacks on u.s soil across three presidential administrations and and now into a into a fourth um and in this regard, you know, terrorist threats might seem remote to to many of us, perhaps to some of the uh, to the listeners. They might seem less acute than when we were all working on them together. But uh, the terrorist threat today really is more diverse. It's more geographically diffuse. It's more ideologically diffuse. And in that regard, it's it's more complex. And so I, I think when we look across kind of continuity and discontinuity and continuity and change, I think the question then really becomes is how do you continue to prioritize, you know, these national security capabilities in a resource constrained environment and do so without rolling back those institutionalization um, efforts without rolling back the gains that we that we have made without allowing these capabilities and structures and processes to atrophy because in doing so you would introduce a new level of risk and at that point there has to be then a very open and frank and honest conversation with policymakers and with the American people of what level of risk we would find acceptable. And I think that's where you might see a shift, uh, Juan. Yeah, no, that risk calculus is critical and and how that's explained to the public and, and how that gets translated into the bureaucracy is critical. Farah, I, I want to give you just a, a quick opportunity to speak to the continuity on the war of ideas issues before going to the lightning round. We've, we've seen the rise of ISIS. We've seen the rise of other terrorist groups, how do you see sort of the current war of ideas as it's played out over time and, and now in the 21st century? Thank you, Juan. Um, I, I would say a couple of things. The first is that the threat that we face is an us versus them set of ideologies. And that's happening both on a domestic landscape and on an international terrain. So when we think about the war of ideas today, how is the perspective that we take on this? If we're looking at things the way we did 20 years ago, it's a completely different landscape. But if we look at 
what fundamentally the ideology was about, which is narrative shift of an us versus them, um, an appeal to people around misinformation and disinformation and rejecting truth for lies, a conspiracy around what the United States is, uh, a rise of hate to minority groups. I mean, we could list a, a lot of things that are embedded, whether it's ISIS or the Taliban or uh, AQ or the QAnon conspiracy theories or white supremacists in America today and in Europe. I mean, there are lists and lists of different types of actors that are using ideology of us versus them to recruit, basing um, everything that we know on, on what, what we put in place, we've got to go all in today. And as I think about the, the trajectory of this fight, the war of ideas, the names may be different. The, the concept about what we call it, and let's be really clear that the language over the four administrations has changed dramatically based on politics and based on a whole bunch of uh, other things. But the fundamental structure of what needs to be done this aspect of how to fortify communities from others trying to come in and radicalize. This idea of building a, you know, a ground force hasn't changed. So today, whatever you call it, however you look at it, there is a need today to do more than we've ever done before and to think more creatively, as we did in the, in the, excuse me, in the Bush administration, to think about the threat that we faced that was taken forward in the Obama administration to make it a little bit more enhanced, even further today to apply what we know uh, domestically, uh, internationally to the domestic audience. This is what we ought to be thinking about. It's not getting caught up in, is it the same, is it the same set of enemies? Is it the same kind of threat? It's not. It has morphed. It's become more dangerous. It is more critical that we look at soft power today than we ever have before. Michelle, that's something really important about sort of funding resources. But I also want to add to that a fatigue that has set in around thinking that we have accomplished what, you know, there, there's not been another 9-11. And so therefore we shouldn't put the kind of time and energy into this. Today, we've got to be smart about what the ideological wars are and how we're building resilience in our communities. Juan, can I jump in there real quick on, on this and what Farah just yeah, said? Real, real fast, Michelle. Oh, yep. oh yeah. No, in, in one of the areas where, you know, where perhaps we did not anticipate in institutionalizing was a focus at the time on the domestic violent extremism, of course, of which we're struggling right now and which is rising to the forefront with racially and, and ethically motivated violent extremism, anti-government and anti-authority. And, and so, you know, Farah is right, um, you know, in terms of looking across where we need to continue to evolve and refocus efforts. Yeah, and maybe just a, a, a final footnote on, on what you both are saying. You know, I think there is a luxury to the security that we have seen yes. uh, in the wake of defeating Al-Qaeda and in diminishing the threat. And I think there have been waves of this, of course. And, and President Bush talked about this. He, he would It was his mantra with us. He also mentions it in the foreword of the book where it was our job to worry about you know, the, the, the threat and the problem of, of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups and transnational threats, it was, you know, our duty to protect the American public so that the American public could go about its lives and the economy could go about its life and uh, society could, could not worry or, or be angst, angsted about terrorism threats all the time. And so um, there is a little bit of a of fatigue in, in what we're seeing, but also 
a luxury of the success that, that was spawned uh, from the Bush administration, I think. Let me, let me just ask in a lightning round fashion uh, to each of you, what one thing would you want the public to know about Bush administration foreign policy in light of this book or that you think this book helps to highlight? It, what's, what's one aspect that you think is either forgotten or, or not fully recognized? Will? Yeah, I think there's an aspect of really foreseeing the future, like the world that we're living in now in 2023, that you'll see there in these Bush administration memos and the president's own uh, you know, policies and parties there in, you know, at, at the end of 2008. Authoritarian populism. We have a whole, you know, memo on that, and that's of course a real, you know, phenomenon we're dealing with globally right now. Um, pandemic, a global pandemic. Again, of course, President Bush led quite a bit in trying to prepare for that. Even in a number of ways, I think he really anticipated what became the Arab Spring several years after he'd left office of highlighting how these uh, autocratic, you know, somewhat uh, brittle autocracies in the in the Middle East are just not very stable because they don't have uh, democratic legitimacy. And so even though we didn't solve all the problems or fix all the policies, there's a certain farsightedness sinking President Bush and his team about, about what the future world looked like that we're in now 15 years later. Great. Well, Farah, what do you think? Well, it is really important to think through the, the wisdom of engagement and how important was that President Bush really put a lot of effort on, on that soft power dimension uh, in, in every way. He organized an effort that had not been done before around rethinking the way in which we can engage. Um, and importantly, and this is the point I want to make, there is a the the fundamental point of Al-Qaeda's ideology was this narrative that America was at war with Islam and Muslims. And President Bush was very clear from the very beginning that we had to do everything we could to demonstrate that that Al-Qaeda was manipulating one of the world's great religions, and that we as Americans believe in pluralism, and that every faith is, is part of America. And so when President Bush walked into a mosque twice during his administration, when he put a Quran in the White House library for the first time in American history, when he pushed hard to develop an envoy to a, an organization for the Islamic Conference of 50-odd number um, Muslim majority state group of, of nations that had never had an American envoy sitting there, he was sending a message that said, we are engaging, we are not going to play into this idea that America is at war with Muslims because we're not, and we understand that Islam is part of America. Fantastic, Farah, thank you. Michelle, what do you think? There are so many thoughts that, that are running through my mind right now. I'm just going to I'm going to go very, very narrow. I know that that Will and Farah went much more more broadly. But I, I think it was, you know, for me on the narrow set of issues I worked is really understanding the culture of preparedness, the culture of resilience that the Bush administration tried to put forward. And we you know, we think about this solely in terms of we often 
think about it solely in terms of, you know, within the borders and, and within the homeland itself. But so many, um, so much of the backbone that we built for the homeland security resonates out to other natural and man-made disasters, in, including um, our, our culture and preparedness in response for, for other uh, broad uh, global issues that, uh, that we continue to struggle with today. And so I, I think overall, it's that broader resilience that President Bush tried to instill you know, within the American people, but then to back that up with an appropriate institutionalized backbone across structures and processes and authorities to be able to provide an enduring feature um, across, uh, across generations. It's fantastic. And I, I'm going to take the moderator's privilege here right and here. just offer a, a thought and a reflection you know, when you look at this book, and again, Will, kudos to you and the team of editors who put this together, and Steve Hadley, who led the effort. Just a phenomenal book. What strikes me is the scope of the foreign policy and the ambition. And those of us who worked on war and terror, obviously, were focused on, on those issues. But this is a really important reminder of the breadth and depth of policy that was underway. And the fact that we were walking and chewing gum at the same time. And it Reminds me of our senior staff meetings that Steve Hadley would lead in the uh, in the sit room during the weeks, and we would sit around the sit room and review what we were focused on as a as a council and as the president's staff. And it was always remarkable to me how global in scope we were, how deep we were in our coverage, and frankly, how humane we were. And I'm just reminded, uh, and Will, you referenced this PEPFAR. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which has saved 25 million lives, which the president didn't have to do, America didn't have to invest in, and we did. And it has made uh, a world of difference in diminishing the threat and, and deaths from, from AIDS in Africa. So this book is a phenomenal contribution, I think, to uh, academics, to policymakers, to students, anyone interested in foreign policy needs to read this book. And again, kudos to uh, Stephen Hadley for leading this effort. Will, I want to thank you. Michelle, I want to thank you as well, Farah as well, for your time and your efforts, not just today on the podcast, but also in putting this book together. Congratulations and thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Juan. Well, that's it for this episode of FinCast Handoff. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a great discussion with some great experts and friends. We will see you next time on FinCast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of FinCast. FinCast is produced by Alex Bu and Nick Fernandez. They do a great job. Thank you, gentlemen. FinCast is available where other podcasts can be found, certainly on our website at www.k2integrity.com and on our Dolphin platform. That's the dedicated online financial integrity network. We hope you enjoyed this episode certainly enjoy past episodes and share those that you think are interesting and important. We look forward to having you back next time on FinCast.